0: So, this semester, uh, we've been in the Gospel of Luke, and uh, slowly but surely, somewhat making our way through this. At some point, we're going to have to skip a lot of stuff, and it's okay. When we get there, I'll explain it. Um, But tonight, we find ourselves in Luke chapter 7. And um, we're asking this semester, doctor who? Because Luke was a physician he was a doctor. We're asking Luke, the author of this gospel, who is this Jesus? Who is the real Jesus? Who is the Jesus that I need to sift through all the things that maybe I've heard or thought or assumed in my life and make sure that I have the Jesus of the gospels, the Jesus of the Bibles, the Jesus that was promised, the Jesus that says he one day will come again. And so today we're actually gonna, tonight we're gonna see three pictures and three of three people. Dealing with that question for themselves in different ways. So let's dive in here. Uh, we're going to start in verse 18 of chapter 7. And I'm going to skip a little bit um, as it is in your handout there. But let's read this. This is God's word for us tonight. The disciples of John, this is John the Baptist, reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord saying, Are you are the one, are you the one to, who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he, being Jesus, healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor Have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Let's skip down to verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and he took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them love him more? Simon answered the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray before we look into this. Father, we thank you for this, your word. And we ask, as we always do, that it would be just that to us. Your very words. That you would speak to us and speak by your spirit into our hearts. Words of truth, words of grace, words of life. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I don't know about y'all. I don't know how you enter each uh, football season. But I'll give you a little rundown how I uh, enter each football season. I'm I'm kind of the eternal optimist, right? Whatever the experts say, whatever they think we have or don't have. And when I say we, I mean state. um, And that's where I'm going with this. So, um, you know, there was question marks coming this year, but there were also, like, we have to be better than we were last year. That was kind of assumed. But you kind of get there, you go through the first couple games, you know, okay, we look good, but we still got to find out what kind of football team we are. And then we get to LSU weekend, and y'all, come on. That was like the... We kind of peaked too early, like all of us. The whole campus, I think, that weekend was just totally baller. But anyway... um, You know, the way that game went, spoiler alert, if you weren't there, um, shame on you. Uh, We killed them. And so we're all kind of dealing with the aftermath of that, right? Like, okay, are we really almost that legit? Maybe like we were a few years ago. Everybody's kind of having these thoughts. We go into a place that shall not be named. And our expectations are kind of set back on a different track, right? I got it. Yeah, you're fired. Um... (laughs) already fired him once. I'll do it again. Um, So there's a thing, as I assess football, as I assess my team that I'm a fan of and, and how we did the first few games and going into a big game, right? I had a certain set of expectations. And last Saturday, they were kind of turned on their head, right? I wasn't for sure we would win, but I was somewhat for sure I thought that we wouldn't look like we did, right? Because... My expectations, as they grew and as some different evidence maybe shaped my expectations, they led to a series of assumptions, big ones, and they governed then what I then expected for the near future. And as soon as those expectations were disappointed, right, I'm right back in the fetal position on the floor. I mean, I'm right back uh, having measured expectations, I guess. What we see in this passage tonight, we covered a lot of ground and we skipped a lot of verses, but it's fine. But what we see in this passage tonight, we're going to look at is three people dealing with Jesus and trying to bring their expectations of him and what they think he's about or what they think he should be about in line with reality. And those three pictures, I have them listed there for you. One is a picture of doubt. Next one's a picture of skepticism. And the next is a picture of faith. So let's run through this. The first is the picture of doubt. And this is John the Baptist. And these stories are are right back. uh, They're back to back with each other. Uh, And I want you to get the full full, full force of Luke including this picture. Because for Luke and for all the gospel writers and for Jesus himself, actually, John the Baptist plays an integral role for us understanding who Jesus is. That was his God-given, God-ordained, before-the-foundations-of-the-world roll, was to be born before Jesus and to prepare the way for him. That was his ministry. Later on, you'll see, if you keep reading in your own Bibles the pa- this verses that we skipped, Jesus actually tells the crowd that of men who have been born, none of them are greater than John. Jesus thought a lot of John, okay? Um, and now, what we read, as kind of a few chapters into the gospel, is that in the midst of Jesus' ministry, his preaching, his healing, his being generally awesome, as it reads, John kind of has a moment where he stops and he's like, Is Jesus the one or not? And so he sends his disciples to Jesus to ask him this question. And, this, and again, you've got to get the full weight of it. No one believed in Jesus like John did. John is the one that we read at the beginning of uh, the Apostle John's gospel. That Jesus walks by him and his own disciples. And John tells his disciples, there goes the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John knew who Jesus was. He baptized Jesus. Okay, That's what makes him the Baptist, not a Baptist. Right? He heard the Father speak. He saw the Spirit descend on Jesus like a dove. And it's this John, at this juncture, after a few months or years or whatever, there he goes, is Jesus it or not? And so he sends his disciples to ask. And so the question is, what is at the root of this doubt? And look, it's John the Baptist. At the root of this doubt is not unbelief, okay? There's all kinds of different doubt, and and I don't have time to break it down, but John's doubt is not coming from a place of unbelief. But you've got to see what's happening. If this Jesus is the Messiah, if this Jesus is the one that was promised, if this Jesus is the one that we've hoped for and, I, and this is the Jesus that I was sent to prepare the way for, if this is the Jesus who is going to make everything in the world right, why are my circumstances still so awful? John will later be imprisoned for speaking truth to the king and then later beheaded. And it will really hit home for him, right? Why am I in change? Chains. What is Jesus waiting for? If he's the one, why Why does everything still feel the same? You feel the weight of that, right? And how does Jesus respond? And that's why we only read to the point that we read. Because how Jesus responds to John, he, he just keeps doing the same thing he's been doing. He heals the sick. He exercises demons. He restores the sight of the blind, the lame walk. And in verse 22, he says... Go tell John what you see. Tell John what you've seen today. Give him good news, right? This is what what Jesus is telling John ultimately, okay? What Jesus is telling John is, John, I am the one, but I did not come into this world to fall in line with your expectations. And so at some point, John, you're going to have to fall back in line with mine, right? Right? You see, John preached, uh, 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 his ministry was one of repentance. He preached the consequences of sin and, and fiery judgment without repenting of sin. And so John, there's a sense here in which John expected Jesus to do and be the same. John wanted Jesus to be a reflection of himself. But Jesus hasn't been that. And so John doesn't understand what's going on. And Jesus is actually pushing back against that. And we know that when you read on, Jesus actually uses this moment after John's disciples have left to look at the crowd to make a bigger point. Because he says, we're just like this. He says that I don't come here to fall in line with your expectations. At some point, you're going to have to fall in line with mine. Maybe the source of your doubt is not that I'm wrong or doing something wrong or not doing what I'm supposed to be doing, but maybe you've gotten it wrong somewhere. Maybe your expectations have gotten it wrong somewhere. Um, And he actually looks at the crowd and says, John was this fiery preacher and you went out to see him and you rejected him. I'm here preaching grace, people accuse me of being a glutton and a drunkard, and you reject me. Which is it that you want? And so what he's saying is, as long as I am a projection of your expectations, then you've not truly met me. And you've not honestly dealt with who I am and what I say and what I've taught and what I'm doing and will do. And in other words, what Jesus is saying is, if Jesus has never offended you, maybe you haven't met this Jesus. I used to love, my, my, my boys are older now, they, don't, they just fight all the time now, like brothers should, I guess. But uh, when they were a little smaller and they were first trying to like, figure out how to play board games, it, it was always fun to listen to them play board games with each other. Because basically they'd be playing a game and every move, right, a different rule would come up. And as they kept playing the game, what you realize is that they're no longer playing that game anymore. <laughs> They're playing a projection of the things, of the way they thought that game should go. And the the way that that game should measure up to what they thought it should be. Um, And at some point, right, if they were going to actually play the game, at some point in their lives, they were going to have to let the rules of the game measure their expectations and shape their expectations. Instead of what they wanted it to be. And so, to a degree, what Jesus is saying is either, at some point, either Jesus begins to shape your expectations... Or maybe you should ask the question of whether you've been trying this whole time to make him fit yours. Who doesn't sympathize with John? If Jesus, if you are the one, why do I still feel the same way now that I used to? Why did my parent still pass away when they got sick? Why did so-and-so go through the abuse that I know they went through? Why can I not keep from going back to this or that weekend after weekend after weekend? If you are the one, what am I doing wrong, right? You know, there's there's no phrase more common or more irritating to me really than like, well, my Jesus wouldn't do that. Or my Jesus is about this. Here's my problem with that saying is that what your Jesus is is just that. Your Jesus. What about this Jesus? Uh, Scottish preacher named David Robertson. I love this. He said, if you take the Christ out of Christian, then you just have Ian. And Ian can't save you. (laughs) Scottish people are really funny. (laughs) Think about this. What is it at the end of the day that makes you feel okay with life? Or what is it that you aspire to every day that you hope by the end of the day will help you be okay with life? It'll help you be comfortable or secure or happy or whatever. You fill in the blank. Is it that you're one of those people that actually doesn't do what so many other people do on the weekend, right? You're actually doing college responsibly. Is that what makes you feel okay about life? If that is you... Then you come to the Gospels and if the Jesus that we see in the Gospels eating and fellowshipping with outcasts doesn't bother you, by the way, when I say that, I mean the type of people you wouldn't want to eat with, by the way. When you see Jesus doing that in the Gospels, if that doesn't bother you, then you've missed it. Because the people that know this Jesus, they actually turn around and want to draw near to those people as well. Maybe you're okay because people like you. Or maybe that's what you strive to every day because you think if... if, People just accept me or like me for this or that at the end of the day, then I'll be okay. Well, if Jesus being completely rejected by the end of his public ministry, not even his best friends can stay around him. If that doesn't offend you, if that doesn't bother you a little bit, then you've missed this Jesus. Because when you've really met this Jesus, you actually start to become very okay with disappointing people. And understanding that you can't make everyone happy. And again, with John the Baptist here, you notice what Jesus didn't do. He doesn't condemn John's doubts. He actually finds it fully understandable. And so he sends words of comfort. And so the question is, are you bold enough to actually give those doubts to Jesus? Because one thing John does show here is that he knew this Jesus well enough to to know that Jesus could handle it. And so he asks you look at the disciples, the disciples doubted all over the place and all over themselves. It was ridiculous, okay? And what got them in trouble was when they tried to cover or compensate it for themselves. But the real Jesus, this Jesus, must bump against and maybe even offend our expectations. And if he never has, then we might need to ask ourselves whether we've really met him. Whether we've really dealt with him as he is and as he comes to us. So that's the picture of doubt with John the Baptist. Let's move on to this next scene in the Pharisee's house. And we see skepticism. And it may be fully understandable that some of you are thinking like doubt and skepticism are those not the same things. This is at least how I'm defining doubt. I would say doubt is something when you question something that you previously held true. I would define skepticism as questioning something in order to verify its truth. This is where I would put Simon the Pharisee. He's a skeptic. He knows Jesus is popular. He knows Jesus is a teacher. So, look, get, let's give Simon credit. He's going to have Jesus in his home uh, to get to know a little bit about him. Here's the thing about Simon. He's a Pharisee. If you know anything about the Gospels, if you're familiar with them, we kind of tend to like put the Pharisees in like the boogeyman category because um, they're kind of jerks. Um, and so, understandably. But you have to understand, every time you read about the Pharisees, the Pharisees were the most upstanding people in Israel. They were the most respected, most all-together, did everything right by the book people in Israel. They're the people that voted the right way, whatever, okay? These were the Pharisees. Everybody looked up to Pharisees. And so hosting somebody for a meal is a big deal, and Simon does this. He wants to get to know Jesus a little better and see what he's about. And this would have been a semi-public thing, and that's kind of why this woman finds her way uh, to to the house and, and the dinner. But here's what we realize by the end of the story when Jesus starts talking to Simon. What we realize by the end of the story is that Simon has been a terrible host. Because in that culture, when you would host someone, especially someone of renown, which Simon clearly knew he was doing, in that culture, it would be very common to first greet that person at the door with a kiss and a hug to welcome them in. You would immediately have a a bowl of water and a towel and fragrances for their hands and their feet. And then you would seat them. All of these things Simon has obviously and clearly avoided and omitted. And it would have been obvious to everybody. And so Jesus tells him flatly, Simon, I know why you didn't do these things for me. Because you don't love me. So essentially what Jesus is saying to Simon is it's not because you have questions. It's because you don't have love. This woman loves me, you do not. Simon was completely lost and had missed Jesus. Even though he respected him. Even though he respected them, Even though he believed in God. What he's, Simon is doing by his action is saying. Jesus really just doesn't do that much for me. He actually thought it was pretty ridiculous. That someone would pour themselves out for Jesus. That's his thoughts right. That Jesus addresses. But there was nothing attractive or exciting or moving about Jesus. That did anything for Simon. And that's what Jesus calls him out on. I don't know if you ever watched The Big Bang Theory. I kind of love that show. It's pretty hilarious. Um, classic case of contrast in The Big Bang Theory is Leonard and Sheldon. You see, Leonard has Penny. And Leonard loves Penny, right? Because Penny is like the blonde, very attractive. Leonard's a nerd. He, no reason she should be dating him. And so, like, she, he loves Penny. He would do anything for her. He's the best thing. He, she is the best thing that he has ever had, right? Sheldon, however, has Amy, Awkward, Amy. Um, and Amy actually loves Sheldon, but Sheldon kind of just views the whole relationship as like a social convention. There's tons of things that Sheldon would rather be doing than hanging out with his girlfriend, like trains, for instance, or Star Trek or whatever. You've got to watch the show. It's fun. And I think that case of contrast points to exactly what's going on here and how Simon can so easily be a reflection of so many of us. Because especially for those of us that grew up in the church and Jesus is kind of a familiar thing in our lives, like we really do like Jesus. We really do believe or want to believe that he lived for us, that he died for us, that he was raised for us. But at the end of the day, what we realize about our lives is that there's very little about Jesus that actually does anything for us. That moves us, that affects us. Right? So here it is. What you find beautiful in life, like Leonard with Penny, what you find beautiful in life is obvious to everyone around you, whether you know that or not. What you find beautiful is easy for everyone to see. Like, you would have to be the densest person ever to spend any time around me and not understand that I like football a little too much. (laughs) Right? Because it's beautiful to me, right? Um, Yeah, I used it. And some of you get hung up on the fact that Jesus or your relationship with Jesus or whatever just doesn't, isn't doing much for you, isn't moving you maybe the way that you should. But here's the question. Have you ever thought about what does? What does move you? What does excite you? What does cause you to look at your calendar and put everything aside and make priority for it? What are those things in your life that do that for you? Is what really excites you the next fun weekend, however long away that will be? Even if you went out last weekend and the night before and the night before. But, or is it the next time that you get to go home? Because you just can't wait to get out of here. Or is it that he or she finally looks at you the way that you wanted them to? What is it that really moves you? Because what really moves you is what you find beautiful. And what really moves you at the end of the day is something besides Jesus. And it's something besides Jesus because if you're honest, you just find those things more exciting. And once again, as heartless, cold, whatever, as Simon is towards Jesus, Jesus doesn't condemn his skepticism, it's not what he does. He meets him where he is. He confronts him with this fact that, Simon, your skepticism isn't rooted. Skepticism being, you're trying to verify if I meet your expectations. Your skepticism isn't rooted in a lack of evidence. It's rooted in a lack of love. Your heart doesn't want me. And that's why he points to this woman. Um, Simon didn't think he needed Jesus. But this woman does. Which leads us to the last picture. Okay. This picture of faith. This is kind of amazing. We don't really know much about this woman, except one thing. The passage says it three times. She was a sinner. She was a prostitute. That's what we're being told. If he had known what kind of woman this is, he would not have let her touch him. Right? Everything she does here, and this is—you got to take this full picture—and everything she does here is outrageous. She one, she busts up in a house of a well-to-do person and a dinner party of probably all men. She's breaking every social convention that there is. Okay, um, couldn't even speak to your wife in public in this culture. Okay, she's a blustering mess. Okay, she's crying and she cannot contain it. Tears are f- just pouring from her face. She's on the floor in a heap. And she has let down her hair Which interestingly, culturally back then One of the main things that a man would look forward to On his wedding night Was the first time he got to see his bride Let down her hair She is breaking every single convention That there is between men and women And people of well-to-do people And not so well-to-do people, okay And more than that, she takes this alabaster flask It's a very expensive thing And she uses all of it Not only does she use all of it she uses it on Jesus' feet. Alright, y'all gotta understand, maybe y'all have thought about this and heard this before, but y'all gotta understand feet, feet are nasty just in general. But in this day, feet were gross, funky, okay? Like, you know, your mom tells you go to the bathroom, wash your hands. Like in this day, it was like, dude, wash your feet. Okay? Jesus' feet, he walked everywhere. They would have been nasty. Okay. She is literally pouring herself out. On Jesus' feet. And here's the thing. You didn't have air conditioning back then. They also didn't like... A shower a day was not a thing back then too. A vial of something that smelled good for a prostitute. That was her livelihood. To smell good. To be attractive. And she is pouring... She is somewhat literally pouring her life at Jesus' feet. It was her security. It was her beauty in a bottle. And something about Jesus so captured this woman that she does not care what anyone thinks anymore. Some of y'all are like, man, I wish I could find that. Something about Jesus has so captivated this woman that she just does not care what anyone thinks anymore. Everyone in the room knew who and what she was. She doesn't care. She only cares about Jesus. Jesus. And she shows it. So here's the question. What would produce such an outrageous act from this woman? It's something that Jesus points out in front of everybody. He says, her faith has saved her. Her faith. And faith is one of the most enigmatic words. I don't know if you grew up in the church like I did. But like faith is one of those Christian words that we all kind of like know it means something. But if we really were put on the spot to define it, we'd be like... Believing, I don't know. Um, her faith has saved her. And, what, and this is what Jesus is saying in the midst of the context of everything we've read tonight. What he's saying is, Simon, she gets it. She gets it. And so think about the context. John the Baptist, John the Baptist, didn't get it. At least not easily. He was having problems with it. Simon the Pharisee, one of the most upstanding men in the city doesn't get it. But the whore did. Without question. What are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with the fact that over and over and over and over again in the Gospels and in the life of the church, the people that most naturally and most easily believe and have confidence in this Jesus are people just like this woman. And here's the thing, this woman had not done anything different. She'd obviously heard about Jesus, maybe she'd even heard him talk at some point, and she'd heard about this too-good-to-be-true grace, and she realized that she needed it, and she believed. And Jesus says, she gets it. And not only did she believe, what is so clear with this story is that it had begun to change her from the inside out. He tells her this, that her faith has saved her. What made her faith saving? And here it is. It was not because she had amazing faith. That's where all your minds went, right? That's where every youth retreat that you've ever been on that talked about faith goes. How good is your faith? The Bible never asks that question, by the way. Her faith is saving not because her faith is amazing. But because her faith knows that there is only one place to place that faith. And it's in Jesus. Her faith is not saving because her faith is amazing. Her faith is saving because her faith was in a Savior. She knew that she had nothing she could bring. She knew that she had nothing she could stand on. She knew that even her own desirability and her beauty could not make her okay at the end of the day. And so she pours it out. And what she's saying is, Jesus, I need you. And that's it. I don't know if you've ever seen this video. I love amazing videos. Um, There's a video where um, a mom is, I don't know if it's the girl, little girl's birthday or what, she's sitting on the couch and she's gifting her with all this Disney stuff. And one of the main things is a Disney backpack, a print, like a princess backpack or something. And the mom asks, where would, where would be a great place to take all this stuff? And the girl's like, Disney World? And the mom says, okay, let's go. And the girl's like, what? Like, no, like, I'm not joking. Like, we're going to go right now. If you freeze the video at that moment, the look on the girl's face is like, (laughs) it's like this burst of inexpressible joy just explodes out of her. It's amazing. I love it. Google it. Here it is. You give your life to what captivates you. You are giving your life to what captivates you. If you struggle with passion for Jesus, if you struggle with how you feel about Jesus or Christianity or whatever, what this is telling you, what the Disney girl would tell you, is that it, it, it must not be good news to you What is the last thing that Jesus tells them to tell John? Healing, all this stuff going on. He says, tell him that the poor have good news preached to them. It's good news. Your schedule, your grades, your looks, that girl, that guy. You might think they are good news. But they can't save you. That's the problem. And the problem is not whether or not you have faith. That is not the problem. The problem is where is your faith? What is it in? Because I can promise you it's in something. Because you're giving your life to something. This is why Jesus is so unexpected. Because what Jesus shows us here is he really actually can handle your doubt. So take it to him, he really can handle your skepticism. So take it to him. He really can handle you. All of you. And there's not one bit of you that makes him cringe or shy away. For the first time in her life, maybe that's what this woman found. He really can handle you. He really does delight in you. He really does delight in the real you, not the you that keeps failing your you, yours or everyone else's expectations, but you. One of my favorite hymns is Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me, and my favorite verse in that hymn is this Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress, helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. This woman found that last line to be true. And so she went to Jesus. And she found everything that she needed to heal her soul. What if it were true? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you give us hearts... To believe, would you give us hands to cling? Would you give us words to confess our doubt, our skepticism, our anger, our cynicism, our sadness, our shame, our guilt, our self righteousness, whatever it is? Lord Jesus, you have promised that you can deal with it. It's not quite what we expected. But we pray that you would meet us there, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.